we come before you and Lord, we thank you. We praise you for what you're doing in our midst. And Lord, we know that any time a person or a group of people are on fire for you or doing great things in your name, that the evil one comes and desires to, to thwart that. And Lord, we're not sure of what's going on in the spiritual realm, but there's no doubt in our minds that the devil is moving to destroy the work of Village Bible Church. He does that in placing temptation in our lives, but he also does it when we uh, find ourselves not living up to the commitment that maybe God has called us to. And Lord, I pray for every person in this place. Lord, I thank you for their lives. I thank you for the ministry that they have. And Lord, your service is not just about the pocketbook, but it's about our time, it's with our testimony, and also with our treasures. And Lord, I pray that we would be humble servants before you, not only in sharing our faith and and, uh, living a life of commitment to you in all other facets, but Lord, that we would do that in the uh, generous giving uh, to our local church. Lord, I pray that my words would not come across in an offensive way unless it is offensive through your spirit, Lord. I pray that uh, your words uh, have been communicated and that, Lord, you, because we know you have a bright future for this place, we place this in your hands. We've articulated the need and we know that you are able to do exceedingly, abundantly more than we could ever ask for or imagine according to the great power found in Christ Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Second sermon this morning. Open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. Two weeks ago, we uh, began a series called uh, Malachi, an Old Testament declaration and 08 application. And for 14 weeks, we are going to look verse by verse at this incredible last book of the Old Testament. We're going to look at this ancient truth of Malachi that has a truth for modern times. And last time we did an overview about it. We talked about Malachi. We're not sure if Malachi was a real individual or if he was just the messenger of God because that's what Malachi means in the Hebrew, my messenger. And we wonder uh, whether who that might be, whether it was Ezra, Nehemiah, or maybe even a guy named Malachi. We're not sure, but we do know that his message applies to us today. Now, in this four-chapter book, as we study, we are going to see seven uh, different announcements that are declared by God, and then there's going to be a rebuttal by the people of Israel that are going to question God uh, in his assessment of the people. Each one of these announcements and each one of these rebuttals signifies a spiritual indifference to uh, to God from the people of Israel. So let us stand and look at this first passage this morning as we read God's word, Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. 
you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Father God, as we open your word this morning, this is your word, you've written it to us. And there are some incredible truths, lofty truths, the love that you've given us. Who can express it? What amazing love that we've sung about this morning. But Lord, you also speak about your anger and hatred. And Lord, we don't understand this as much. And Lord, we know that you are love and we must learn how to balance that love and hate of God and understand what you mean. So I pray you would open our hearts and our minds this morning. Father, I pray that you would be with me. You know my studying has been short. You know my week has been full. So I pray that you will allow me to speak boldly and that my words will impact the lives of those in this place. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In 1983, a young man named Steve began to write a poem to his girlfriend. And he wanted to, sing, to, uh, to uh, write a uh, poem that had the theme that the love that he had for her was going to take every mundane thing out of her life and take the most boring of days and turn them into a magical one. And he began to think about what that may look like. He began to think about what words could be written. And these are the words that uh, Steve shared with his girlfriend. He said, no New Year's Day to celebrate. No chocolate-covered candy hearts to give away. No first of spring, no song to sing. In fact, it's just another ordinary day. No April rain, no flowers bloom, no wedding Saturday within the month of June. But what it is, it's something true. Made up of these three words that I must say to you. Then he says, I just called to say I love you. I just called to say how much I care. I just called to say I love you, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. thought about singing that song. If you don't know what words those are, the young man that wrote that was the man Steve Wonder, better known as Stevie Wonder. And he wrote that, and it turned into a song. Producers didn't want it to be on one of his CDs. They said it was tacky. It was dumb. Keep it out. It doesn't live up to the stuff that you've sung in the past, Stevie. But he said, you know what? The words are true. Let's put some music to it, and maybe someone may like it. Well, it became a Billboard number one hit. In fact, it's the number seven on most charts, number seven top love song of all time. I just called to say, I love you. Malachi chapter one begins like that. God looks down from heaven and he sees a people who are indifferent to him. He sees a people who find themselves uh, uh, busy doing the things of this world, forgetting about God. Now, God could have come and God could have hammered down uh, his ha celestial hammer and started uh, yelling and screaming, how can you do such a thing? I am your God, you better obey me. And he would have sounded a lot like I do when I yell at my children. Do what I say. Stop living the way you are. But what does God say in the second verse of Malachi? I love you. I love you. 
And he uses the prophet to proclaim his message. There are three things we need to pull out of this text this morning. First of all, as we look at this first announcement from God, we see a gracious proclamation. A gracious proclamation. God sends a, uh, a wonderful proclamation. Sorry, it's a glorious proclamation. I've got a gracious somewhere else in my text. A glorious proclamation. God says, I love you. Have you ever thought about what that means? God says he loves people. That should be a weighty subject for us to handle. That should be something that spurs our heart to follow him and his son, Jesus Christ. That word, I love you, should be a word that gives us a desire to serve in whatever way we can. Those three words that God calls, if you will, to us and says, I love you, should change the way we look at our Father in heaven. What an incredible proclamation that God gives. We don't have enough time to deal with what that means, that God loves his people. This is what Charles Spurgeon shared on this idea. When preaching from John 3.16, he said, God so loved the world. Where do I begin? God so loved the world. So I ask all you surveyors, bring your chains and try to make a survey of this word, God so loved. Nay, that is not enough. Come hither those that make national counts and surveys and lay down your charts for all the nations. Then come and map the sea, you who map the sea and the land, and make chart of this phrase, God so loved the world. Must I go further? Come yonder and hither all those astronomers who use your optic glasses to spy out the spaces before which imagination staggers. Come and encounter calculations worthy of all your powers. Yet with all that measured between the horns of time and space, There is a task today that will defy us. God so loved the world. That should change who we are. This idea of love is an idea that is foreign to every other religion. The Buddhists don't believe in a loving God. The Muslims don't believe in a loving God. The Hindus don't believe in a loving God. Christians and Christians alone are the only ones who believe that our God loves us. We're the only ones that changes everything about who we are in comparison to everyone else. Why is that? There are three things that we see in this proclamation. Number one is a personal proclamation of love. Look at what it says in Malachi 1-2. I loved you. Circle that word I. This isn't God giving his love through an intermediary. This isn't God saying that he's thinking about loving us. This is a personal love that God has for the nation of Israel. He says, I love you. This is important. This is possessive. His love for us is his love, no one else's. In fact, we know that this is a part of the character of God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and verse 16 says that in fact, in one of the attributes, the many wonderful attributes of God, love is at the center of them. For God is love. We must never forget that. Even as we speak about God's wrath and even the hatred of God, which we will in a couple moments, we must always uh, put that into the context of God's love for God is love. 
The second thing we see this morning is that not only that it is a uh, personal love, but it's a perpetual love. He says, I've loved you, says the Lord. Now we miss something if we read in our English translations because it says, I have loved you, meaning my love for you is in the past. In the Hebrew, this word is found in the perfect tense. What that means is, uh, it's the, give you a Hebrew word, hava, and what this word means is a relational love. 217 different times it is recorded in the Old Testament. It's in the perfect tense, which means the following. I have loved you, I will love you, and I will always love you. So what is God saying? He's saying, I have loved you, I do love you, and I always will love you, says the Lord. It's a perpetual, it's an ongoing love that God has shown. Now Israel had heard this before. In Jeremiah 31, I'll just turn there for a moment, write that in your outlines. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, this is what the Lord said. He said, the Lord appeared to us from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love and I have drawn you with my loving kindness. God's love for his people has been consistent and constant through all all ages and time. Next we see it's a patterned love. What is this love? Is this this warm, gushy feeling of love? Is it, is it us sitting there and, and getting all warm and bubbly inside and, and writing little love notes back and forth uh, between our God and us? Or is it something more than that? We find so many times that we try to base God's love on our love, the emotion of love, which is so uh, short of what God's meaning is. So what does God's love involve? Well, in the area of Israel, it involved a couple things. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 7. If you're in the book of Malachi, go to your left, all the way up to the first couple books of the Bible. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. After Deuteronomy, it is the book of uh, Joshua. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is what the Lord declares to uh, Israel. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 11. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He's the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Let's stop there. There are a couple things we need to understand about this love that he had for these people. When God declares, I love you, we need to understand, first of all, it's a unique love. It's unique. This isn't given to anybody else. God doesn't say, Israel, I love you like I love the Assyrians. Israel, I love you like I love Americans. Israel, I love you like I love the Koreans. He says, I love you and I've set my affection on you. No other place in in Scripture do we see a nation so loved and so blessed than the Israelites in the biblical times. 
We don't see anywhere else. Now we see at different times and different places that God sets his affection on people. We know that that took place, that foreign uh, people uh, who trusted God and did as God said that God blessed them. Of course, Rahab in the city of Jericho was blessed and was loved by God and protected by God because she was willing to uh, hide the spies that came from Israel. But we know of no other nation that articulates the kind of love. This is unique to Israel and Israel alone. Next, it says we see that it's unconditional. This love is unconditional. The Lord, it says, chose Israel. This isn't something where Israel goes and picks out God. They didn't go to God Mart and say, who are we going to find as our God? Who are we going to find as our king? Who are we going to follow? Let's go see. Well, there's this God and this God and this God. Well, we like this God, so we'll go ahead. Nowhere in scripture does it say that. All throughout the Bible, it says that God chose Israel. He picked them out. And it's not because of anything that Israel has done, signing any contracts. What do we see? We see that God, in fact, when the contract is given in Genesis 15 between Abraham and God, God is the sealer of both sides of the covenant. Not Abraham and God, but it is God who makes the way that the covenant will be fulfilled. The next thing we see is not only is it unique and unconditional, it's undeserved. It's undeserved. He says, I didn't pick you because you were greater than everyone else. In fact, you're the least. You're small. You've got nothing that uh, would deserve you my love and affection. Israel, please hear me, was no more holy, no more deserving. They had nothing on any other nation that would allow them to receive the love of God. Next, it was unmerited. Even if Israel had something, which they didn't, there was nothing they could do to merit the love of God. No amount of money, no amount of sacrifices, no amount of anything would accomplish the meriting of God's love for his people. It's important for us to hear this morning because as the people of God, we must remember the love that God has given us is unique. God loves us in a way that is far different than he loves the world. He has set his affection upon us. It's unconditional. We didn't come up with a contract with God. We didn't say, God, uh, let, me, let me pick out the God that I want. God set his affection upon us. It says that before the foundations of the world, we were in the mind of God. It was undeserved. We learned last week that, the, or that uh, Ray talked about we're pathetic sinners and uh, like White Sox players, lovable losers. We're miserable people. The Bible says we're blind, dead, and held captive by the evil ones. Paul says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We've got nothing that gives us any reason to deserve the love of God. Nothing. It's unmerited. In fact, in the undeserved, before I move on, the Bible says while we were still sinners, Christ demonstrated his love for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were deep in our sin and in our trespasses, God does the greatest thing in this world, sends his son as the greatest love offering that would ever be given. And finally, it's unmerited. For by grace, you are saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works that any of us could boast. 
This love that we see being declared to Israel is a truth throughout the New Testament. God loves his people. It is a unique love. It is an extravagant love. It is an incredibly awesome love that God shows us. And it is time for the people of God to receive that love, embrace that love, and live in light of that love. Because if we don't, we will be like the people. Because the second thing we see this morning is a grievous protest. There's a grievous protest. Notice what uh, the text says. You would think that they would turn around and say, all right, God loves us. Isn't that great? Let's have a festival about it. God loves us. But what is their response? Verse 2, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? They're questioning God. God has just declared that he loves them, and they say, how? Show us how you've done it. There's a protest. We say this as people all the time. We do this when bad things happen in our lives. We do this when finances get tight. We do this when things don't work out the way we want to. And the minister gets up and he says, God loves you. And you sit there and say, how can he love me when my life stinks as bad as it does? How can God love me when my sinning neighbor has greater and more satisfaction in life than I do as a child of God? And this is what the people are saying. This is what the people are arguing with God. How can you say you love us and then let our people get beat up and get abused and have evil, brutal armies come in and destroy us and put us into exile? How can you say you love us and then, and then do and allow those things? Well, the Bible tells us some things that we need to understand. We need to understand, first of all, that it's not a problem with our God. God's not the problem. We are. There's two attitudes that come as a result of of this. First of all, we see that these people were unaffected by the love of God. They were unaffected. They didn't care whether God loved them or not. They had lost their fire. Who, Who cares that they were God's chosen people? It wasn't doing much for them anyway. They'd just gotten done with captivity. The Babylonians and the Assyrians, they seem to be the ones on top. What about us, the Israelites? Who cares if God's for us? It doesn't really make a difference anyway. We're in captivity. We're a small nation. We don't have a large army. We've got nothing. They're unaffected. They'd forgotten their first love, the one who had chosen them to be his people. And they had seen that God, being a a people of God, was more of a burden than a blessing. When I wrote that down in my notes, I thought, how many different times in my life I have viewed being a child of God as a burden instead of a blessing. When I've looked and I've said what I could do if I wasn't a believer, the fun that I remember my teenage friends having, And then that spirit in me saying, don't do that. Stay away from that. And I would say, what a burden. What a killjoy God is. They seem to be having fun. They don't seem to be reaping the consequences. And I viewed God as a hater of me instead of one who loved me. And one who had given me everything that was good and pleasing to him, to me, for my enjoyment. They were unaffected. So many of us today are unaffected by the love of God Next, it was unappreciative. they were unappreciative. They weren't thankful for what God had done. 
and what he was doing. The idea that they had at that moment was, God, what have you done for us lately? There are people that truly understand the love of God. And as was articulated, and I don't mean this to be funny, but I look at the team that I root for. I love them not because they win and lose. I love them for whatever reason. I'm a diehard fan. And I take the abuse, like I should, because we've got big mouths at Cubs fans. But you know what? It was, it's not what the Cubs have done. What have the Cubs done? They've brought heartache. They've brought pain. They've brought suffering. They've brought Bartman. They've brought the goats. They've brought all that stuff. I'm not bitter. But you know what? I love the Cubs, and I don't even know at times why I love the Cubs. Because it's not based on what they've done for me. You know what? Our love for God. Very tough illustration to, to bridge, but, a, but one I think is true. Don't look at God for what he can do for you from a temporal standpoint, from an enjoyment standpoint. Look at what God has done in your past. Look at what God is doing in your present and look what God is doing in your future. It's a holistic thing. So when you get bad news from a doctor, when you get bad news from a banker, when you get bad news from a spouse, don't point your hand at God and say, God, you don't love me. How can you say you love me? Don't look at the temporal. Look at the love of God and the totality of not just your life. The world doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around God and his plans and his purposes. And you say, even if the Lord take everything away from me, Lord, I love you and I will always be affected by the love that you have for me. That's what Job said. Though he slay me, I will still, holy cow, I will, wow, I will, that's the Lord's message saying, get done, you're done. I will, I don't even know, trust in him. I will praise him. Wow. Um, Why did they get to this point? First of all, why do we get to this point? How did they get there? First of all, they forgot God's message. They forgot God's message. They had forgotten what the prophets had shared. They had forgotten what the word uh, of Moses and the word of Jeremiah and, and Isaiah and Daniel, they had forgotten what, what God had spoken through these men. They had forgotten what God had done. The words that we have recorded in the Old Testament, Old Testament are words that define and demonstrate what God did for his people. And they had forgotten about it because they were so focused in on their life. The time of Malachi has been characterized as a time right after the grand finale of fireworks. It's over. And you've seen this great show and all these wonderful things. And now it's silent and people start heading home. That was the time they were living in. God wasn't doing a lot of incredibly awesome things at that time. There weren't miracles that are recorded during this time in the, in the scripture. There wasn't this amazing movement of God, if you will, through the people. And they find themselves unaffected because they had forgotten God's message. How true is that for us today? In a time that we live, we don't live in the time at the day of Pentecost where, where incredible things were going on. We're not seeing people being uh, healed like we used to. We're not seeing people being raised from the dead like the apostles did. And sometimes we forget. 
And we start to say, well, God, what are you doing for us? You, you love us, and here you're leaving us hanging. It's kind of a quiet time right now. In fact, it's becoming more and more uh, difficult to live as a Christian. So they forgot the message. Next, they focused in on other things. The Bible doesn't talk about the people of Malachi's day as being, if you will, blatantly sinful as much as they do talking about the spiritual indifference of the people of Israel. They were indifferent. Why? Because they were distracted. The book of Haggai says that when they came back from the captivity uh, of the Babylonians, that they got so focused on building their own homes that the temple of the Lord was still in ruins. They were busy doing their thing, focused in on their work instead of working on what the Lord had for them. And because of that, because of their focus, they moved to find pleasure in those things. This is the sin of American Christianity. We find ourselves forgetting the message of God, the love of God, and we find ourselves focusing in on other things, our job, our kids, our homes, our hobbies, all these things. And what happens? A simple math equation follows. You forget God's message, you focus in on other things, and what happens? That equals worldly pleasure. The Bible says in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4 that a counterpart or a, a helper of, uh, of Paul's named Demas deserted God because he loved the present world. He gave up following Christ because he loved other things more than God. Why? Because he was unaffected by God's love and he was unappreciative of God's love. And somewhere down the line, he forgot what God had recorded in Scripture and he focused in on the world. And what did that lead him to? To leave God. There are some of us who find ourselves dangerously close to that little canyon of unbelief and disbelief. Because you find yourself forgetting what God's Word says. You're not even in God's Word. It's the first time God's Word's been open all this week. And you start looking at other things because you're busy doing those other things. They become more of a love to you than God Himself. And so what does God say? He cries out and He says, I love you. Don't ever forget it. And yet they protest. Third point this morning we see a gracious picture. How does God demonstrate his love? He gives a history lesson. Notice what he says in the text. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I've turned his mountain into a wasteland and his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes, says the Lord. Or I mean, you'll see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. We've got limited time, so let me run this down as quickly as I can. The history lesson that God gives is the history lesson of two twins that are born, Jacob and Esau. The Bible says even within their mother's womb, they were wrestling with one another. 
jostling. And, and, and the mother asks the question, why is this happening? Why is all this movement taking place within my womb? What's going on? And the Lord answers that there are two nations within you. And the two nations that are within you will start with Jacob as one nation, the nation of Israel, and Esau, the nation of Edom. And history is going to begin, if you will, these two national histories will begin with your two sons. They represent two nations. And so what does God say? God says that he loved one and hated the other. Now, right away, if you have any kind of theological background, you're going to say, all right, this is the doctrine of election. Yes, you can pull the doctrine of election from this text. You're going to need a lot more help from other passages of Scripture, especially Romans chapter 9. You're going to also have to look at Ephesians chapter 1 and many other passages. There's a passage in the book of 1 Peter that addresses this idea of election. And there is great debate about this idea of election. But I'm here to tell you, while I have a position on election, I don't think that that's what the purpose of this text is. I don't think that God just starts out and says, all right, we give him a theology lesson. You have been elected. And even if it was, we have to be very careful to stick within the text of what it's saying. So let's look at it and we'll address this idea of election. First of all, we must understand that the, there are two nations that are represented. Jacob, Esau, which is Israel, and Edom. Now we need to understand, first of all, that in the context, God's love and hatred is not that he says, Jacob, I saved, and Esau, I've damned, or I've not saved. You can't say that, because we know not all of Israel was saved, and we know not all of Edom was destroyed, but that there was no one found to be a follower of God in Edom. The Bible never says that, nor does the Bible say anything else. So we cannot only speak from silence on that. But we do know not all of Israel was saved. Even Paul said that. Not all of Israel is Israel. So just because you were an Israelite didn't mean you were saved. And just because you were an Edomite didn't mean you were damned or, or uh, put away for salvation. So we have to be careful with that. The other thing we need to understand is what does he mean by love and hate? We've understood the love part. What about the hate? Most commentators say that this love is not based on human, um, um, this hate is not based on human emotion. We hear that God hates. How does God hate? I'll be honest with you, I don't know. It's somehow because we know that God in his love and even in his hatred for sin, God judges and brings forth wrath. We know that. We talked about that a couple months ago when we addressed Romans chapter 1. So we need to understand that. But what is this hatred? Some have, have said, and there's some credence to what they're saying, they will cite uh, Luke, let me find, Luke 14, verse 26. Luke 14, 26. The Bible talks about that, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, if you love your father and mother more than me, then you're missing it. Because he says, you must hate your father and mother, brothers and sisters, and love me. Is Jesus telling us to hate our parents? Is Jesus telling us to hate our family? Or is he using an exaggerated term to articulate that the love you have for family relations should be far less than the love that you have for me as your Savior? So many will say what God is saying is that Jacob, he really loved, and Edom, 
he loved, not so much. Could be true. We're not sure. We can address it that way. But here's the problem that I have with it. Because we understand, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this. The, the first bullet point in there is the designation of a special people. We've seen how God loved Israel. The Bible says, in fact, in Romans 9, let me just read some of the blessings that they experienced. Romans 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. For I wish I myself would be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, the Israelites, those of my own race, the people of Israel. For theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs is the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from there is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. They had it going for them. And we see that designation of a special people. But let's deal with this hatred thing for a moment. What does that mean? Is it love less? I struggle with that. And I understand a lot of us don't want to think that God hates a nation or hates a people. And I would say maybe our definition of hatred is wrong. Because if he loved them less, then the text would not say what it says next. He says, I'll make their mountains into a wasteland. I'll leave their inheritance to jackals. They will be crushed and they will try to rebuild, but I will demolish. I'll call them a wicked land. I'll call my people who are always under the wrath of God. That doesn't sound like loves a little less. So what do we do with that? As I said before, we couch all the attributes of God together. And even when we're done, we say, oh, the depth, the height, the width of the knowledge of understanding of God. What Paul says at the end of one of his chapters in Romans, who knows the mind of God? What do we know of God? That God is love. But we do know that God hates sin and judges sinners. And he does that with purity and honesty and integrity. So when we do ask the question, does God hate? Yes, he does hate. He wouldn't have said it. Does it mean love less? It can't because the word that is used, hate, God says he hates divorce. In uh, the third chapter, I believe, of Malachi, does that mean God loves less divorce than he does marriage? No. We would preach that emphatically that God hates divorce, a breaking of a covenant between man and a woman. So we would preach it that way. We need to be careful that we don't preach this hate to be something that's just a little less of love. God is telling us something. What is he saying? He's saying that there is a destruction of sinful people. We know Esau and Edom. In Esau, we know that God uh, addressed Esau. He called him in uh, the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter uh, 11. This is what he said of Esau. Let me just quickly address that. Uh, Where is Esau at? Future. Oh, man. Thank you, chapter 12. Uh, Ray, help me, please. Oh, I love you, Ray. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. Those are heavy words. This is what he says about Esau. He's godless. He gave up his birthright for a single meal. We also see Edom, the book of Obadiah. Read the book of Obadiah sometime. It's after uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, I believe, is the minor prophet there. A one-page book. 
It's all about God's judgment on the nation of Edom. And in the book of Obadiah, it declares that Edom will no longer be on the map. God says, I'm going to wipe you out. And what he shares in Malachi becomes a reality. Do you see Edom on the map? No. Do you see Israel on the map? Yes. God destroys a sinful people. Why does, how does he do it, first of all? He does it through opposition. He does it through opposition. God would oppose them. They try to build. He'll tear it down. He try, they try to do anything. He'll feed it to the animals of the land. He opposes them. Next, it's oppression. There's oppression. They would never have a future. Israel was said that God would be with them for a thousand generations, and yet they would be decimated. God hates Now we have to couch that with his love, but we see opposition and oppression. What does that all equal out to be? A designation of a special people, a destruction of a sinful people. It involves a display or a description of a spectacular plan. Let me close with this. God's love and God's hatred must be brought together. That's what Malachi chapter 1 is about. God's choosing to love some and his overlooking of others. We need to understand that. We don't realize all that that entails, but this is what Malachi is talking about. And this is what we must address. This is what we must address. God says, why does this happen? Why do I love and why do I hate? The reason why is that my name, look at what it says in verse 5, that you will see with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. God has loved you. If you're a child here today, you are loved by God. Now, I will say also that you're, if you're not a child, if you've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, you are loved by God as well. We cannot take away that God so loved the world. But let me address this. The love that God shows me as his child is so different because one day I will stand before that God and that God who has been showing his love and his compassion to me will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Come and be a part of my fellowship for all eternity. But the one who comes before God and has not come to the saving realization of Jesus Christ and bowed the knee, the Bible says there is destruction. There is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is uh, an utter darkness that will come. Why? Because God hates sin. So what do we know of God's hatred? That one day he will judge and he will bring forth wrath. We know that the wrath of God is being revealed even today. But we also know that his love is restraining that in many ways because God is unwilling that any should perish. So the Bible says that he is patient with us. So today is the day that if you have never trusted as Christ, Don't wait to feel the wrath and hatred of God. Today, trust God, trust Christ. Give your life over to him because in that moment, you will see that the Lord is great and is to be praised, not only in Israel, not only in Village Bible Church, but through all parts of the world. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we praise your name. Lord, I thank you for who you are and what you've done. I thank you for your love, for we have experienced your love on the cross of Calvary. But Lord, I also pray 
And we believe with all our hearts that you are a God of wrath and of judgment. And we know that you are patient. We know that you are kind. But we know that we should not test the hand of God. For we know our God is a consuming fire. So Lord, I pray and I plead with the hearer out there today who has never trusted you and who stands as an object of your wrath, as the book of Ephesians says, that they would turn to you and that they would experience firsthand the love that you have for your people. Oh, Lord, that they would recognize the common grace that has been bestowed upon them, the goodness you have declared to them by bringing rain to them, by bringing food to their table, by bringing happiness to their life. But, Lord, that they would recognize that a day is coming where they will stand before you and you will judge them for their sin. Oh, Lord, I pray there would not be a person in this place who would enter that judgment, but who would enter a judgment fully knowing that their sins are paid for once and for all. Oh Lord, that would bring you glory and that brings you honor. So that's the cry of our heart this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.